Good morning. I uh, obviously was here for the first service, and I thought as I was sitting in the worship time, I think I like these people. You know, I don't even know. You don't meet... You, you don't know me from a post. You know, you say, who's, who's the old ball guy up there? Well, I, you know, as I was sitting here, I was thinking, you know, what a, what a wonderful group of singers. And, and the, the lady who played the piano, what a lovely touch. And then we have the young Vikings playing the guitars and the drums. And I, this is cool. Um, I was born in Alameda, California on St. Patrick's Day. 1942. You can do the math. That means I'm on my 72nd trip around the sun. Ruth and I have been married as of this past July 27th for 50 years. And uh, that's, uh, yeah, you can clap for it. She, she still looks a lot the same, and I look like I got run over by a wounded water buffalo. You know, we have four children and 11 grandchildren from age 22 to age 3. And when you look at, if you try to think of accomplishments or investment, I think that would be it. That would be something that I would look at and say that's a, it's a wonderful thing. But the, the chance to be with you and to be with your pastor and to be with uh, other friends here is a, is a special time for us. Ruth and I are on our way to D.C., Next Sunday we'll be there. And just the privilege of sharing our lives in some small way is a, is a joy. If I could give you a gift this morning, and I say this a lot around the country. If I could give you a gift, I'd give you the gift of perspective. One of the things about aging is that you, you sort of start distilling stuff after a while, or you just forget other stuff. And, you know, how many of you older guys, you know this is true what I'm telling you. But the, but the fact is, perspective sets the stage for almost everything in your life. For me to stand here, I have a particular view of you. If I move just two or three feet to the side, this is a different view. If I come down one step, that's a different view. If I just come down two steps, I've only moved four feet from the pulpit. But this is, this is scary for the folks in the front. But this is, this is a different view. Little kids have a totally different view. Preschoolers, kids that are short and they wander around in a world of kneecaps. These, these kids have a different view. When our eldest grandchild, who is now 22, when she was two and a half, we were visiting with them in California, and early in the morning, like 5.30 in the morning, she climbs up into bed with us. Now, if you're a parent and your preschooler climbs up into bed with you, you're going, oh, no, not again, and usually they're wet. And, but, but if you're a grandparent and your little guy climbs up, this is a moment. And so she said, let's talk. So I'm clawing my way out of the darkness. And I said, what do you want to talk about, Allie? Her name's Allison. And she, she said, I'm going to have a baby sister. I said, well, it could be a brother. They didn't know the sex of the child and her mom was pregnant. I said, it could be a brother. And she said, yeah, but I want a sister. I said, okay, why don't we think of some names? And this illustrates how kids think differently about stuff. I said, why don't we call the baby Boogalooney? She looked at me. I said, how about Zonga Bonga Wonga? She started to chuckle. I said, why don't we call the baby Yavoslavovich? And she just howled and said, oh, Grandpa, those are boy names. What do I know? Kids just think in totally different. They're in a different universe. And if you think kids 
think differently, you ought to try Jesus. When you read Jesus, he is so totally different, so totally disturbing. He just, it's just, it's unnerving, really, if you take him seriously. When I was first out of seminary, I wanted to make sure that I said, now, is this text, do I, do I preach this allegorically? Is this literally or this historically? I don't worry about that so much anymore. I just worry about taking Jesus seriously. And when you take Jesus seriously, he really unnerves you. And it's, in, it's interesting because he is, he is the most profound person that ever walked the planet. Even if a person didn't believe that he was the Christ. And, you know, a lot of people don't believe that he's God. This guy, Mohandas Gandhi, a lawyer in South Africa, who came to India where my parents were missionaries in, in the late 40s after the war. He took one idea of Jesus. This idea. If somebody does this, what are you supposed to do? Turn the other seat. Question, when did you last see someone do that in the church, outside the church? I'm saying that's not American. John Wayne would never do that. He would gun you down in the name of the Lord, you know, or just say, <laughs> take that pilgrim, you know, something. But he took that one idea, not believing that Jesus was God, and drove the British Empire almost single-handedly out of India. In 1947, I'm five years old. I'm standing on a street corner in a town called Utakaman, South India, with a little British flag in one hand, a little Indian flag in the other, watching the empire march out of India. I believe he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when I take him seriously, all bets are off. Ruth and I drive a lot across the country. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll drive for 10 hours in a day. And the first 43 minutes were sharing deep thoughts and how's the family doing and and then you pretty much run out of stuff after and so we listen to british mysteries on audiobooks it's always good to figure out who killed whom as you drive across kansas and uh i have a favorite british mystery writer her name is dorothy sayers dorothy sayers was a contemporary of c.s lewis and during the 40s and 50s she wrote from a perspective of the Anglican Church in England. And this is what she said about Jesus. The people who crucified the Christ to do them justice did not do so because he was a bore. Quite the contrary, he was too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. She goes on to say, we have effectively paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and made him a house cat for pale priests and pious old women. First time I read that, I said, man, I wish I'd said that. But one of the things is I don't want to, through my habits or my style or my approach, muffle up that shattering personality. It's clear to me as we sing worship songs, whether it's he's an awesome God. And I'm from California and I have to keep saying to my kids, peanut butter is not awesome. God is awesome. So when we sing it's an awesome God, I'm into that. Or whether we're singing crown him with many crowns, I'm thinking to myself, his shattering personality is not muffled up in this place. The line of Judah's claws are not paired in this place. There is something profound about this Jesus 
who, when challenged about what is the greatest commandment, quotes the Torah. In the 22nd chapter of Matthew, this is how it reads. Two religious groups, religiously oriented. One of the priestly class called Sadducees. The others are lawyers, essentially Pharisees. And they have different agendas. And they're strange bedfellows here because they're working together trying to get Jesus because he, he is so unnerving. He speaks with such authority. And this is what it says in verse 34 of chapter 22 of Matthew. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. For a long time, I thought that this was a commandment, because that's what it says. I have a friend, Ruth and I have a friend, who when we were looking at this text one time, she said, you know, the, the, the most interesting word to me in that text, apart from God and love, is all. I mean, who, who does stuff with all of their heart? I mean, that's a lot. Like, that's total. All. And she went on to say that it's her experience that people who approach things with passion and intensity always have energy. And people who do things in a half-hearted manner, just sort of tipping your hat to it, are always tired. Here is the God of the universe who creates us, who calls us to love him with our total being, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and he puts in mind. You won't find that word in the Torah where he got this from. But Mark says, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the point is clear. Love him with all. And when you do that, all of the other guidelines, all of the other laws, 613 religious and civic laws, hygienic laws in the Old Testament, are subsumed under these two things. Love God, love your neighbor. It's almost like he's saying, you know, I tried this earlier with ten. I tried to give you ten. That didn't work out. So let's see if we can go with two and see how that works. Love the Lord your God with all your, with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. I thought for years as it was, that, that this was simply a commandment. And it is that, but it is more. And I discovered that on 9-11. Ruth and I lived for 15 years in Falls Church, Virginia. Right across the river from Washington, D.C. I was 15, 20 minutes from the Capitol. And I spent those years privately walking with people in places of leadership. I'm a kid. I'm a kid from East Oakland, California. I wasn't raised with money. I didn't go to Yale. I don't have blue blood. I, you know, I, none of that. And here I am, one of my first days. You know, I went to D.C. when I was 51 years old. But it's a totally new environment from what I'm used to. And I can remember walking through the Capitol building on my way to meet with a senator. And it was totally new, and I was nervous as a cat. And I had this little conversation with the Lord, said, you know, what do I say? And, I don't and it's like he said, he did not a verbal voice, but, but I had this impression that he was saying, Dick, when you speak to the king of the universe in the morning, it's not so hard to speak to a United States senator in the afternoon. <laughs> and that worked out, you know. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On 9-11, it was a Tuesday morning. We had had an 8 o'clock breakfast with some ambassadors in a place not far from the Capitol, from the White House, actually, across the river. And as we came out, someone came running out of the kitchen saying something terrible has happened in New York City. We went into the library, turned on the television. It was an old estate. Turned on the television, and I'm standing next to an ambassador from a large North African Muslim country. An Oxford-educated Muslim ambassador who was part of this little group where we got together and ate and had some thought about Jesus every week and then had prayer. He said he came because he was addicted to our friendship. And I'm standing beside him as the second plane goes into the second trade tower building. And he says, oh, my God. And he runs out of the building, gets in the back of his car, and his driver takes him back to the embassy. It was his president from that nation with whom we did not have strong relationship who called President Bush that afternoon as the first president from that part of the world to say, anything you need, we want to help. We think it was because we had this relationship with him. Love your God with your whole heart and love the one next to you. Literally, neighbor means next to you. But on that morning, because I left that building at that time and started to drive home, and I was two miles north of the Pentagon when the American Airlines jet went in at 350 miles an hour. And that morning, calls were being made from the top floors above 100 stories of those two trade towers. Two kinds of calls. One was, God help me. And the other was, honey, I don't, I don't think I'm going to make it. And on that day, I understood not just that this is a commandment, but this is the thing for which we are hardwired. We are built for this. It's where we go reflexively when we feel the pressure. It's where we go when we feel the intensity. We say, God help me. Can you help me? It's just how we are designed. Oswald Chambers. Any of you know that name, Oswald Chambers? Oswald Chambers was a Scottish preacher who worked with the YMCA and the British Army during the First World War in Cairo. He died from complications of a burst appendix at age 43, and his wife took some of the talks he had given, put them into a little book that now today, you know, almost 100 years later, is a devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. On Capitol Hill, you will find more believers who use that little book, in addition to the Bible, than any, any other book on the Hill. But Oswald Chambers, in looking at this text, said this, because what I tend to do is to say, God, I'll love you so I can win the world. I'll love you so I can build orphanages in Egypt. That's what I did. And what Oswald Chambers says about this text is what man considers the process, God considers the goal. That the point of my life is not to win the world. The point of my life is not to build orphanages in Egypt, as good as that is. The point of my life is to love God with my whole heart, my whole being. And on the backstroke, I love my neighbor as myself. On the back, out of that comes this. Now, it, it's, it's, a, it's a mix, isn't it? Because when I sit with you in one of those little Proverbs group, you show me things about him that help me love him better. So there's this mix and match going on. 
all the time. That's, that's, how it, that's how it works. And how does love work anyway? Love in our culture is like an accordion word. I love margarita pizza. You know, just a plain pizza with sliced tomatoes. I, I, and, and it loves me. And, uh, you know, I love the Pacific Ocean and I love the Rocky Mountains. And, and, and I love our kids. And, and I love God. And I love Mercedes Benz's. I don't have one, but I love and And, and I love Ruth. And it's all a mishmash, this love. Let me give you a definition of love that is not mine. I borrowed it. And the guy I borrowed it from borrowed it from somewhere. He couldn't remember where. But I love the line that says, Originality is the art of concealing your sources. So, here's the definition of love. Love is the accurate estimate and the adequate supply of another person's need. Love is the accurate estimate and the adequate supply of another person's need. You see this all the time in marriage. Is, is it, I tend to love Ruth the way I want to be loved. So when she says, Dick, we need to go, we need to be together and do something, I go buy tickets to a football game because that's the way I'd like to be loved. <laughs> Ruth likes antiques, you know, where you go to those stores and look at $2,000 chairs you can't sit in. You know, I... No, I just, but I found out they have books in antique stores, and so now I'm cool. I'm good. I can love her better. And, but love is the accurate estimate and the adequate supply of another person's need. You say, like, do you have a verse for that? How about John 3.16? Foth version. For God so loved Richard Foth that he accurately estimated that he was a creep and needed a redeemer. Therefore... He, he finds a redeemer in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth so that Foth can know him and live at his house forever. Therefore, Foth knows he's loved. Love is the accurate estimate, the adequate supply of another person's need. You say, well, what is, God doesn't need me to love him. No, but he designed me to love him. He's not needy, but he knows what I need and I'm built in his image. And when I love him, I discover who I am. And when I start loving you, you're a mirror to me and you help me discover who I am. And that's how it works. But you say, how, how are you going to love everybody everywhere? How do, you, how do you love seven billion people on the planet? How do you do that? Well, it's not possible to actually do that. But the scripture says, love God with your whole heart and love your neighbor, the one closest to you. As yourself, If you love this one with your whole heart and they love the one next to them with their whole heart and they love the people next to them with their whole heart, pretty soon you're covering the world. That's just how it works. Listen to this very interesting passage. I told you Jesus is, is unnerving. Listen to Matthew 25. Theologians get, I think, a little frustrated about this passage, but it's fascinating. Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about the end of time. And it reads like this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And he describes, and the sheep will be on the right hand and the goats on the left. And then the king, verse 34, Matthew 25, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. (laughs) I've been at this a long time. Come and get your inheritance. For I was hungry... And you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. 
I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something? To, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. A few years ago, my friend Ward Brim, who's here this morning, talked about this at the National Prayer Breakfast. But it's interesting because we tend to misquote the text, or at least we sort of hang loose with it. We say, when you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. It's not what the text says. The text says, when you do it to one of the least of these, you do it to me. Just to one. Because in that one, we find the whole world. In that one, that's doable. That's doable for a kid. That's doable for someone in a wheelchair. That's doable to somebody who can't hear great. You know, my right ear is kind of going. As I, and so Ruth and I have very interesting conversations because I, I drive and she sits on that side. of the car. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But the fact is, it, for whether you're old or young, we can all do one. That's how, and when you do it to one of the least of these, somebody who is disenfranchised, somebody who's hungry or thirsty or without clothes, so you send shoes that are gently used to Africa. I love that phrase, gently used. Whatever it is you do to one of the least of these, you're doing it to me. I, uh, I love the line, the thought that Mother Teresa had some years ago when somebody said, how can you, because Ruth and I have been to Calcutta 40 years ago and went to some of the homes where she nursed the dying and the sick. And you walk in and there are people that have been cleaned up, but they've been conceived, born, brought up, died, all on the same street corner in Calcutta. And no matter what their religious creed, no matter what their background, she would go and literally pick them up, gangrenous limb, limbs, tubercular people, and it helps them die with dignity. And somebody said, how could you do that? And her response was, well, I'm, I'm not picking up somebody who's sick or has a gangrenous limb. When I pick them up, I'm picking up Jesus. When you do it to one of the least of these, you're doing it to me. There's this connection, this mystical something. It's like our, our worship leader was saying, hey, isn't it interesting how he's personal with you and that connects us all the way around the world? It's the same deal. That's how that works. I have a friend who's a millionaire who was with Mother Teresa and he kept saying, what can I do? And he was ready to write that $100,000 check. And he kept saying, what can I do? And he, he turned, she turned to him and said, what you can do is to go home and love your wife. That's what you can do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I, uh, I love watching Bill Cosby give commencement addresses. Any of you ever see Bill Cosby give a commencement address? He dresses up in academic regalia and then wears the baseball cap from that school. University of Minnesota Gophers, could be Old Dominion, whatever it is. And he always says something like this. He'll say, in a few minutes, you will get a diploma that cost you $100,000 or your parents. And he said, and since it cost you $100,000, as you hold it in your hand, I have just some advice for you. And it's this. Do something.
That's it. It's a hundred grand. Do something. I think when I say, Lord, what, what is it you want me to do? That he looks at me and grins and says, Foth, something would be good. You know? How about loving me with your whole heart and loving the one closest to you the same way? Because they're cut of the same cloth. That's how it works. It is, it is an unnerving statement. It's the seminal, pivotal statement of the Gospels. This is what you are hardwired for. This is what we are built for. To love God with our total beings and love the one closest to us. And when you do that, it's so attractive. It's so powerful. Years ago when we had these four kids under the age of seven. And you, you can tell young mothers who have little children. Because sometimes they get out of the house, you know, and hubby takes care of the kids. And they'll just go to the grocery store and wander down the aisles with a cart. And their eyes are just glassy. And you say, is this your half hour out? Yes, this is my half hour. You know, they just, you know, this is true. And Ruth was washing dishes in the kitchen one day. This was back in the day when we didn't have dishwashers. And, and she was in there. And I snuck up behind her. And I grabbed her around the waist. And she said, oh, Dick, don't be fooling around. But I hung on, you know. And, I'm, and pretty soon she turned around. And, and she, uh, she put her arms around my neck. And soap was driven. And we are just sort of snuggling. And suddenly we felt little hands down by our knees. And the two smallest ones were there. And apparently what had happened, they'd been in the other room. They heard it sort of get quiet and stuck their heads around. They said, the giants are doing that again. You know, that. and at first I thought they were trying to get us apart. And then it dawned on me they wanted a slice of the action. That there's something so powerful about being with people who love God with their whole hearts and love each other. That it's, it sort of has its own force field. It sucks people in. Do something. One thing to one of the least of these. For one of the least of these. I close with this story. There is a town, a place, 660 miles southwest of here that's famous. It's a place called North Platte, Nebraska. Anybody know North Platte, Nebraska? Anybody been there? You sort of have to want to go there, you know. It's, North Platte is a railroad town. The first passenger train came to North Platte in 1866. And the last passenger train went through there 105 years later in 1971. There are no passenger trains that go through North Platte now. But outside of North Platte is an area called the Bailey Yards. The Bailey Yards are the largest train yards in the world, according to the Guinness Book of Records, World Records. 105 train tracks, sets of train tracks, in Bailey Yard in North Platte, Nebraska. Just freight, no passengers. But there was a moment in time during the Second World War when North Platte, Nebraska, did something that no other town did in just the same way. On, on December 7, 1944, excuse me, December 7, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Within two weeks, we started moving troops across the country, both directions, because we were in. A young drugstore clerk by the name of Ray Wilson, a girl, 26 years old, a young woman, 
had this thought. She heard some Nebraska guardsmen, National Guardsmen were coming through. And she said, I'm going to get some girlfriends and we'll make some cookies and take some apples and we'll go down and give them to the troops as they come through. You can read this story in a, in a book by Bob Green, Chicago sports writer, who wrote a book about this some years ago called Once Upon a Town. You can download it or get it at Barnes & Noble. She went down there, and, and they weren't Nebraska National Guardsmen. They were Kansans. She stood there for a little bit, apparently, and said, in essence, I'm not, leaving my, I'm not taking my cookies home. And so she gave them to these guys. And then she went about organizing women to come and meet the trains. During the course of World War II, from Christmas of 41 to April of 46, more than six million United States servicemen came through North Platte, Nebraska, and the Army allowed them to get off the train for ten minutes. Union Pacific gave them an old defunct restaurant, and they nicknamed it the North Platte Canteen. And Women from a hundred miles around were organized into groups to come and meet the train, sometimes up to 32 trains a day. Midnight, three in the morning, whatever, they would be there to meet the trains. There was no 7-Eleven. There were no processed foods per se. You couldn't just go to Walmart and pick something up or stop by Whole Foods and take something over. Everything was rationed. Sugar was rationed. Gasoline was rationed. Tires were rationed. All of that. Little girls would get up with their dads out on a ranch 50 miles away and go hunt chicken eggs early in the morning. Then they'd drive to the closest railway station and free, the train would bring them to North Platte. And they met every train. One woman said, my husband and my son were both in the war. My job during the war was to make 12 angel food cakes in the back of that train station per week out of turkey egg whites. And when these guys jumped off the train, they would run in there and there were ham sandwiches and there was fresh milk and there was hot coffee and fresh donuts and apple pies and pheasant sandwiches in season. And I, uh, I told this story at the Nebraska governor's prayer breakfast some years ago. And a state senator came to me afterwards and said, my mom worked at the North Platte canteen and sometimes it was pheasant sandwiches out of season. It's just a thought. And when Bob Green interviewed people for guys about their experience at the North Platte Canteen, these men were now in their 80s and their 90s. Almost always when he said North Platte, Nebraska, these men would start to weep. And he'd say, what are you crying for? A typical story would be this. Kid raised in Brooklyn, New York, never been out of the city in his life, graduated on a Friday, went down, enlisted on a Monday, and by Wednesday he's on a train headed west, sits up for three days and three nights, eating K-rations, not taking a shower. In the middle of the night, he hears, next stop, North Platte, Nebraska. You can get off for ten minutes. He has no idea what a North Platte is. He said, we would jump off this train, run in here to this warm, lighted place with all this delightful food, with girls who look like our sisters and our cousins, and women who look like our aunts and our moms. And there we were, and we'd eat as fast as we could. There were no paper products, so we'd take a mug of coffee back on the train, go to the next train station. They'd take all the mugs off, put them on the next train coming back east, bring them back to the train station. Every train got one of those angel food cakes. It was a birthday cake because they assumed somebody on the train would be having a birthday. And if they didn't, they'd just say, Sergeant Jones, it's your birthday today. And they'd just give them a cake. Six million men came through that time. 
And he said, we'd run in there and run back out. And some older woman would hug us at the door, put a New Testament in our pocket and say, God bless you, sailor. God bless you, soldier. We're praying for you. We're 18, 19 years old. We'd get back on the train going to God knows where, not knowing if we'd ever come back alive. But for five minutes in the middle of the night in a place we'd never been with people we'd never met, somebody was kind to us. I told this story at the 60th anniversary of Youth for Christ Campus Life. They work on high school campuses in Denver some years ago. And the next morning, a young woman, a young staffer from Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, came up and said, my name is Jennifer. And while you were telling the story last night, I thought about my grandpa. He's 90 now, but he was in the Navy in the South Pacific during World War II. And I called my mom last night after the talk and said, Mom, do you think Grandpa ever went through North Platte, Nebraska and stopped at that place? She said, I don't know, honey. Why don't you call him? She said, but you know how he is. He said, my grandpa's in a nursing home and he has dementia half the time. He doesn't know who he is or where he is. But I called him last night, Dick. And I said, Grandpa, this is Jennifer. I established who I was. And then I just asked this question. Grandpa, does the name North Platte, Nebraska mean anything to you? And she said, instantly, he was lucid. And he said, North Platte, Nebraska, you bet it does. That's the place where I just ran in for a few minutes and they had hot coffee and fresh donuts and they shined my shoes. He said, I will never forget North Platte, Nebraska. What is it that causes a man who's senile or has dementia 60 years after the fact to come out of dementia in that moment? What is it? It's someone who loves his neighbor as himself. It's someone who in the middle of the night gives a cup of cold milk and a piece of apple pie and a pheasant sandwich out of season. It's that moment in time when my life is up for grabs and somebody is kind to me that introduces me to the kingdom of God. Introduces me to life. There is this verse in Romans, the second chapter, the fourth verse, that says, The kindness of God leads me to turn around. It leads me to repentance. Friends at Wyzetta Free Church, we are hardwired for this. And when we love Him with our whole heart and do something for one of the least of these. All bets are off. So there. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the power of your spirit. Thank you that you don't make it complicated, but in fact you distilled it in such a way that when we think about it, it's burned into our spirits and our psyche. The enemy of our souls, Lord, would want to complicate it and add stuff on and make it different and turn it sideways. And you come along and say, here's the deal. Love God with your whole heart and the one next to you is yourself. And we're good. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being in this wonderful place with these wonderful friends this day. In Jesus' name.